Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. <clears throat> the Bible says that God's Word is inspired for correction, for doctrine, for reproof, that we would be complete, lacking in nothing. So everything we need for life and godliness we find in the Scriptures. Our first question today is one that we are asked quite often about the fear of God. Why should we be afraid of God? And I'll have people who will say to me, I'm not afraid of God. I I don't know why we should be afraid of God. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but I'm not afraid of God. When we should just think about this. He is our creator, the creator of the universe. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He is sovereign. He has given us what he wants from us in life, why wouldn't we be afraid of him? Why wouldn't we have a good, healthy fear? Now, let's take a look at a few scriptures that are going to help us to understand what exactly it means to fear God. Uh, It really means to be in awe of him. It really means to have a heart to do what God wants you to do, knowing that he is our heavenly father and he can discipline us. But let's just take a look at a few passages that are going to help to give us some, um, some direction. First of all, we know we're not supposed to have the spirit of fear. Right? First, uh, this is 2 Timothy 1 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind, which means that we get a relationship with God. We enter into a relationship with Him. It's a promise to Christians, not to non Christians. If you, if you have a nominal relationship with God, if you're not really sure that you have that close relationship to Him, you should be afraid. Love him, and we will be given a spirit. We are not given the spirit of fear, but of power and of love. But we've got to make sure that we really do know him and walk with him. Isaiah 41.10 says, fear not, I am with you. So, if the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe, my creator, is with me, and he's on my side, then what do I have to fear? Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So again, having things right with God takes away that fear. Psalms 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commands and praise uh, his praise endures forever. Now, the word for fear here is not the word to be afraid, but it's to, to revere. To, to, to be in awe of him, to respect him. That's what fear is. We should never be to the point where we think, God, well, I'm not worried about him at all. He's my good buddy. No, no we should always have respect for God and always that heart that says, am I doing things right? Am I loving you? Am I doing justly? Am I walking humbly with you? Psalms, and I got Psalms 11, 10 here twice. Uh, Psalms 9, 10 says, And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Now, I love this. It's one of my favorite Psalms. We could just break this down. For those who know your name will put their trust in you. If we know God, and it's not just knowing his name, it's knowing who's behind the name. We can know the name of someone but not know them. But when we know their name and what they're all about and we call upon them, it says, Lord, um, uh, 
For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. The Bible says, if you seek him, you'll find him if you search for him with all of your heart. <clears throat> and God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Are you a seeker of God? I want to know him. I want to know him more. I want to know more of his word. I want to walk with him more. Deuteronomy 12.10 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord. Your, your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him and to serve the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. Again, the fear of the Lord is not a reference to be afraid of God, but to give him respect, to, to revere him. But when we revere him, we love him. Matthew 10, 28-31 says, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear the one who is able to destroy the, destroy the body and the soul in hell. That's an interesting passage. He's saying, don't fear the one who can just kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. But then he goes on to show us, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? and not one of them falls to the ground apart from the Father's will. But the very hairs on the head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than the sparrows. Be in a right relationship with him, and you have no reason to fear. Now, we also have what I call the parent analogy. That is, when my, my children were younger, they had a good, healthy fear that they wanted to do what I wanted them to do. Because if they ran out to the street, they could get hurt. If they didn't do what I wanted them to do, I was watching out for them. And so I would discipline them. I would be stern with them. Hebrews 12, 6 gives us the same idea from God. For who the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then uh, you are illegitimate and not of sons. So God is going to chasten us. It goes on to say, furthermore, we have had earthly human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. And there it is. We fear him. We respect him. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? And they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them which isn't always the right way to chasten, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness for those that have been trained by it. And if you ever disobeyed, if you ever disobeyed your father and they came to the place where you got caught in something, there was a fear not because you didn't think your father loved you, but because you knew you were going to be in trouble. And I hated that feeling as a kid. I hated being in trouble and feeling like I was going to get it from my dad. And um, that's a good, healthy respect for our father who chastens us. So yes, God loves you. Yes, God wants the best for you. God honors those who seek him. But if you're not following God, and if you're not really wanting to serve him. You're just kind of nominal in your relationship with him. Maybe a good healthy dose of fear is a good thing. You don't want to die and meet God face to face and not have things right with him. Yeah, the word fear means respect, but I think we put all of it together and we get to the place where we understand that a good healthy dose of fear is actually a good thing.
So it's good to see you guys here. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. A psych man has gotten the first question here today. Um, it says, a psych man, oh, excuse me, this is uh, Laura. Laura has the first uh, question here today. Does watching and listening to sermons count towards spending time with God? Uh, yeah, I would say, yeah. If you are, <clears throat> if you're seeking God's Word, if you're watching and listening and and hearing, it's not just you got to be engaged. But yeah, it, it's been, you're spending time in God's word. You're spending time um, with Him. Um, I still think you should go for walks with Him, right? You should uh, still spend time praying with Him, talking to Him about your children. Um, pray, pray without ceasing. We walk. We walk through life with our God. It's not just like, I go to church and then I'm with God. Or I, I go to read my Bible and then I'm with God. Or I pray and then I'm with God. Or I'm doing something for him, I'm with God. Well, I walk through life with God. Everywhere I go, he's with me. And I'm aware of him everywhere that I go. Um, I'm also aware of my shortcomings because God is with me everywhere that I go. The second question we've got is from Psych Man. Psych Man says, a believer should live in a continual state of repentance. Fearing God, yes. But if one backslides to the point of practicing sin again, does Galatians 5.21 become true and forfeit your salvation? So yeah, Psych Man, I think we had a little bit of a conversation in the comment section about once saved, always saved. Um, this last week, um, those who practice such things are not going to enter into the kingdom of God. I think the argument would be that if you genuinely have a relationship with God, that you're not going to go back to practicing those things. Now, what's going to happen is, is you you fall into or you commit some kind of sin. I don't like the term falling into sin, but you commit some kind of sin. And when you commit that sin, then you find yourself um, uh, repenting, wanting to get things right with God. God does a work inside of you. God draws you back. Um, he leaves the 99. He goes after the one. Um, but those who practice sin are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So, Lord, forgive us and help us to be right with you and help us to have that mercy that is new every morning. All right? So, thank you, Psych Man. I appreciate that. Um, we have a que uh, question from Brandon. Brandon, good to see you. I've heard a theory that Job resurrected when Christ was crucified, Matthew 27, 51. And that is how Job 19.25 is fulfilled. Does this have any validity? <clears throat> I think I know what you're talking about when you're talking about Job 19.21. I think that's where he says, I, um, I know my Redeemer lives. I'll stand with him one day on the earth. But let me just go there to make sure. We'll take a look at it together. Um, I think theories are uh, theories and almost no way to really be proven. Brandon, but um, let's take a look. 1925. Uh, yeah, that's the passage. So let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you. Uh, uh, for I know my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, in my flesh I will see God. When I shall see for myself, my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. 
What, what a great passage and a desire to know God and to see God and have that relationship with him. And Brandon, I don't know if that is the fulfillment, if he was one of those that was resurrected. There's actually no way to know. And without any, any clues that might be in here that would make him think, I'm going to resurrect when you die or, you know, some statement like that. Um, we know that he is going to be resurrected in the last days, that he's going to stand on the earth with his God. His heart yearns for it. May our hearts yearn for it the same way that Job's heart yearned for that as well. Um, interesting theory. I don't think there's any way to prove the theory. And most theories like that, I would think, are wrong. Only because there's just so many theories that that are going to be wrong. Is your, is your spitballing and throwing theories out there uh, that are going to be wrong. But it is good to see you guys. And we have a question from Fact Check These Hands. Fact Check These Hands says, is there any biblical advice for an adult child going no contact with abusive parents after all other options have been exhausted? Is there any biblical advice for an adult child going no contact with abusive parents. After all, other opinions have been exhausted. Um, so I'm trying to think of what passages with parents or with, to use a modern day term, with toxic relatives in our lives, how we would interact with them. Um, I, uh, yeah, I can't think of anything right now as far as the biblical advice for it. I would say, fact check these hands, that if parents have been abusive and it continues on, that there is a time you want to respect um, and you want to give honor, but there's also a time where you, where you say, this is not healthy for me. It's not healthy for my relationship with Christ. It's not healthy for me as a Christian. Certainly, hey, for the sake of Christ, I may want to go ahead and, and take some abuse because I want to see people saved. And so there may be a time to do that. But I also think that there's a time to go, this isn't good for me. These Being around these people is bad for me. I don't find myself being the person who I want to be in Christ around that person. So, um, going no contact um, is a hard one because you want to you want to shine for Christ for them. But I could see scenarios where that could happen. But trying to give an answer to a scenario like this is so hard because there's so many details you don't know. So, I, you know, biblical advice for going no contact, um, not that I could think, not that I can think of right now. I'll, I'll let you know if I come across something, fact check these hands, or if all of a sudden my mind clicks in and, um, and I get an idea. <clears throat> Daniel, good to see you. Uh, appreciate you being here. Keith, good to see you. Appreciate you being here. All right. So um, if you're new here, you've just joined us, really glad to have you here. 
um, hope that God blesses you by the time that we spend looking into his word. If you have a question about the Bible or Christian living or prophecy or apologetics, um, then you can go ahead and ask those questions, I'm not claiming to know all the answers as oftentimes, like I just did, I go, I'm not sure. Um, but we could take a look at what the Bible has to say and see if we can't come to it together. All right, Jari, good to see you. We have a question from Jari. Jari says, did Moses write Deuteronomy 43.10? Was he the Peter in knowing his own fate? How could Moses write about his death and beyond? Yeah, there are certain things that I think that Moses did not write in the Pentateuch. Moses wrote the majority of the Pentateuch for sure. Uh, Jesus even references uh, Moses as writing them. But as time went on and they were copied and recopied, there were scribes that added in things. I think like now Moses was the most meek man on the earth. I don't think that was Moses that wrote that. If it was, he could write a book on humility and how I achieved it. I, I don't think that was him. Um, writing about his death. Obviously, he didn't come back and write about his death. Somebody added to it. All of the, the scriptures were brought to us in a very, maybe this is the right word, earthy term. God used men with, with ink or with clay tablets and putting in, you know, the, the, the marks, letters, uh, to write it down and to tell the stories and that God preserved his word as it came down through the generations. Now, what we have today, we can reconstruct as his word. Now, someone might say, well, then every word of the Bible isn't God's word. And to that, you're right, because we have words that Pharaoh said wasn't God's word. We have words, there, there's a lot of different words that are there that come from different people but we're getting the truth of what those people said. And inerrancy means not that, that we've gotten the exact wording into English or the exact wording in the original language, because think about it. What was the Hebrew language like when Moses wrote 3,500 years ago or 3,400 years ago? What was, the, what was, what was Hebrew like back then? So Hebrew has changed. And so the exact wording has changed as it's come down through the years, but it is inerrant in the truths that it brings us. And there are certain portions where we know that scribes have added things in. And, and this is the beauty of having a lot of different uh, manuscripts that we could compare and contrast because we can compare and contrast and go, yep, that was added in a little bit later on. We can see it because we can make a tree from these manuscripts and see when it's been changed in. Uh, I, I like to talk about textual criticism in this way, Jari. If we have 60 people and I'm on right now watching and I'm gonna talk for the next five minutes and you guys, I'm gonna talk slow and deliberate about about um, inspiration of scripture, and you guys are gonna copy it. Then after that, you're gonna submit it. Out of all 60 of those that are submitted to that five minute talk, how many of them are gonna be exactly alike? Maybe, maybe none of them, maybe a couple of them.
But once we start comparing it, you start to see, oh, that person spelled that word wrong. Oh, that person reversed those words. Oh, they missed a word set here and then added it in later on here. And we're able to compare it and we can get all 60 of those copies and we can get back really close, maybe even exactly to the original of what I said for five minutes. That is a very basic way to talk about textual criticism. And over a period of time, you've got to think of, th of, of thousands of years, you're going to have people, scribes, that are going to be adding information in, and they're doing it not because they want to give more information to the people that are reading it from their day. <clears throat> well, um, I, I think that you get some of those things like in Joshua where it says, and these, and this is there to this day probably a scribe that added it in. That shouldn't freak us out about God's word at all because it's very real. It comes to us in a very real way. It's like when we get two different stories and they are different, but they're compatible. That helps us to understand you've got two eyewitnesses that are giving the same story from a different perspective and they're different, but they're compatible with one another. And that's what you find when uh, J. Warner Wallace talks about this as a cold case detective that you, if you see witnesses that are saying the exact same thing, they've been talking together. But when you find two different accounts, but they're compatible together, which is what we find in scripture, oftentimes people call them contradictions, but they're not contradictions because they're, they're actually compatible with each other. Like for example, one, when Jesus is coming the final time in Jerusalem, one of the gospels says there was a blind man that he healed. Another one says there were two blind men that he healed. Well, both are accurate. He healed two blind men. But in one of the accounts, it's talking about one of the blind men. They decided to point out one of the blind men who are there. They are different, but they are compatible. And that's really important to understand as we're making our way through the scriptures. Because we're talking about something that didn't float down from heaven. We don't, we, I say me, probably most of you, don't believe like the, the King James only people do, that God supernaturally in English gave the scriptures for every word in English being from God. For those who believe that, there are mistakes in the King James Version of the Bible. It came through men just like all other things did. But what is it? Psalms. Let me go see if I can pull up this passage here. I quote it and I, I always wonder if I get it right. I think it's Psalms 12, 5, 5 and 6. Um, no, but it is. I got it highlighted here. So let me um, let me get rid of this highlight first because the highlight drives me crazy. All right. Uh, and I'll get rid of the highlight there too. And now I'm going to go put it up on the screen for you. So this is Psalms 12, 6, and 7. And um, listen listen to what it says here. It says, if, uh, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of the earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them. You shall preserve them from generation to generation forever. <coughs> Excuse me. So God promised that he was going to preserve his word from generation to generation forever. And that is a better way in which we can know that we have received God's word. So, um, yeah, so I went back, I went back there. Let me go back here. All right. So thank you, Jari. That's a good question. And, um, yeah, there were people that through the years added things to clarify certain things. You got to make a decision. Is that added thing to clarify? Is that, does it clarify? Is that 
does it contradict what's there? But we get them in the manuscripts, and we have manuscripts that have corrections in them. So the scribe will realize, I spelled that wrong, and then I'll go back and spell it right. Or they'll draw over to the side in the margin and write in a word that they forgot and they left out. So we have corrections that they make, and they're going to miss some of those corrections, but that's all part of the beauty of being able to compare and contrast 5,000 New Testament Greek manuscripts. All right. So thank you, Dry, for your question. I appreciate it. And um, yeah, I, I'm not sure that I understood that until, gosh, until I was, yeah, had been pastoring for a while, understood exactly how we got the scriptures and, and, and what those things were true. Um, so Rakiah says, uh, hi, Rakiah, good to see you. Um, hi, my friend who is a new, a new in Christ, but does not like being labeled a Christian. Hmm seems uncomfortable with talk of God unless it's positive. I fear she may not truly be saved. How can I help her? Yeah, I would have the same fear that you have. Um, she's probably, you know, gotten some influence from those who dislike Christians and will use Christian the, the term Christian as a pejorative term. Oh, well, they're a Christian. Well, they're one of those Christians. You know, so she, she, she does not want to be identified, but she likes what Jesus says. Um, I think that what I would ask her to start is how she feels about the Old Testament, the words of Jesus, and the rest of the New Testament. That way you're not leading her to see what she thinks of just the words of Jesus. And so what I would be looking for when I would ask if I felt like someone, whether or not they were really Christian or they were more of a progressive Christian, and maybe I needed to really talk to them about a seriousness of surrendering completely to Christ, I would want to know, are they looking at the words of Jesus only? Because that is that was one of the original heresies, by the way, was that in Gnosticism, that the Old Testament God was the, the, the bad God who created the world and that Jesus came to set things in order. And, and that's what progressive says today. The, read the things that are in red. We only want to know what Jesus because Jesus is full of love. But Jesus said some very harsh things. And um, sometimes when I've talked to people about it, they, they don't like that I'll point out to them that Jesus said harsh things to the scribes and Pharisees. And... Um, and then they'll bring up, oh, the fact that the scribes and Pharisees were hurting people. And I say, well, so were the tax collectors, but Jesus seemed to have compassion on them. So there was a certain spiritual pride is a certain kind of a sin that Jesus dealt with. But Jesus did deal with all kinds of sin. So that's where I would go. I would find out is she kind of like a red letter Christian? Is that what she's doing? Um, and hey, we're we're brothers and sisters in Christ. You're my sister in Christ. And being called Christians and having that community is strong. But there are people that see it in a as a pejorative term, and it's not. It's it's I would take I would take the name of of a Christian because I'm being like Christ every day of the week. And even if there's Christians that I don't want to be identified with, and there are. Ones that I go, I don't want to be identified with them, and yet I am a Christian, and I want to show people what it really means to be a Christian, and what, it's what it really looks like to be a Christian. 
Okay, so I think that that's where I would start. Ask her how she feels about the Old Testament, the words of uh, the, the Gospels, and the words of Jesus especially, and the epistles, and see how she responds to that. I think it's going to give you a lot of information as to where she's at and where she's coming from, besides a good, honest conversation. Why don't you want to be called a Christian? What is it about that that you don't like? And um, maybe receiving some help from there as well, Rakaya. Thank you for um, for your question. I appreciate that, and good to see you here. So if you are um, visiting with us for the very first time, good to have you here. If you have a question about the Bible, Christian living, apologetics, um, uh, what it means to, to live for Christ, or you know questions about what the Bible says, then you can write the word question down or a cue in front of it, then write out your question, reread it, make sure it makes sense, add any references, and uh, we'll go ahead and take them as they come in. But it is good to see you guys. Uh, good to have you here. So let's see. All right. It's kind of reading some of the uh, some of the uh, comments that we have here. All right. Um, we have a question from Albert. Albert, good to see you. Albert says, does moving east in the Bible represent sin, our separation from God? Adam and Eve were sent east from the garden. Cain went east after killing Abel. Lot went east towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Thank you, Pastor. Well, that's an interesting observation, Albert. Uh, I appreciate your question. Never thought of it. So Sodom, so Lot did go east, and as a side note, um, and I think it's um, Dr. Collins who, dis who has discovered the city of Sodom. I think the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, but the city of Sodom particularly. And he did that by looking at Genesis. And everybody else thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were down sort of towards the south end of the Dead Sea because a really good, um, because a really good Archaeologists had believed that. Um, so let me see. Yeah, um, Dr. Stephen Collins. Um, if you want to look it up, and um, there is an interview with him on Joel Rosenberg's podcast called um, uh, Epicenter, where he talks about how he followed the Bible, that Lot went east, and when he goes to where they were, and you go east, you go over to Jordan, and there's a circular plain there that's well watered even to this day. They found a city there, then they found that the city was burned with an extreme heat that was there. And um, just pretty, pretty exciting. Um, going east. You know what? I just, I wouldn't know what, why going, they would go east. Um, so that's worth looking into. What does east, what does going east mean? Adam and Eve were sent east of the garden. Cain went out east. Um, Lot went east towards Sodom. And so, um, yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm going to give you an I don't know, Albert, and a put some thoughts into my mind. I would like to look into that. Is there anything in the Bible that talks about going east and west or north or south as being a negative or a positive thing? And is there a reason for that? Uh, that's a really interesting question and, um, and good stuff. 
All right. Um, I might I might have needed to approve something there, um, Keith or Daniel. I just canceled it when it popped up, but something popped up there that I might need to approve. So if you guys need to do that again, it pops up again, I'll approve it. Okay. So thank you for your question though. Albert, I appreciate that. Um, good, good stuff. All right. We have a question from Stephen. Stephen, good to see you. Good to have you here with us today. Stephen says, uh, hi, Pastor Robert. How do you reconcile the proper fear of God as in working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12, with resting in the finished work of Christ. Ah, okay, well, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Let me take a look at Philippians 2.12 here. We'll get it up on the screen for you. Not Philemon, Philippians 2.12. Yeah, work out your own salvation. So, <clears throat> this is Philippians 2.12. Um, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absent, absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to do and will, for his good pleasure. And then it goes on to say, do all things without complaining. So, uh, work out your own salvation. Let's talk about, first of, let's, first of all, Let's talk about what we know, Stephen. We know that I cannot do anything for my own salvation. I know I'm incapable of anything. I can't jump high enough. I can't climb high enough. I can't be good enough to save myself. I am in need of the work of Christ in my life for me to be saved. And we know that that is a gift of God that I can't boast. It's not of works. But we also know that works follow salvation. James said, show me your salvation, or show me your faith without your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. So that our faith shows our salvation. So if I just go, and, and this does happen, I'm, I'm gonna become a Christian, so next time I'm at church, anybody here wanna receive Christ, you gotta invite him in. Yeah, I wanna invite him in. And now I'm, I've given my life to Christ. But there's no changes in your life. Then you haven't made the commitment that you need to make. Not that commitment is work, but you need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not go work for your salvation, but work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Which makes sure that I have that right relationship uh, with him. And um, I've showed this, I think, the last couple of times, but I think it's really good. And I think it's, uh, let me see if I can get here. Yeah. So, one of the questions we get a lot is, how do I know I'm really a Christian? How do I know I've really made a commitment to Christ? And I think that the accuser is so good at accusing us that we get that question. So, here in First uh, John chapter 2, verse 3, it says, by this we know him if we keep his commandments. Now again, we're not keeping his commandments to work for salvation, but because we love him, we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, 
and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. So God's love is working in us that we are now keeping his commandments. By this we know that we are in him. He who abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walked. Which of course we know that we're not going to be perfect in walking in the way that he walked. So we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now yet another part of your question here, you said how do you reconcile the proper fear of God as in working out your own salvation with fear and trembling with resting in the finished work of Christ? Yeah, I think that you get to the point where you go, I'm, I can't do this on my own. And the more I walk with him, the more I realize that I've, I've still got problems, that pride still comes up in my heart, jealousy comes up in my heart, things that I find myself saying to God, I'm sorry, I don't want to be like this, <clears throat> I don't want to be that kind of a person, this isn't who I'm supposed to be, I'm not supposed to do anything out of selfish ambition, but then you wonder, am I doing things for myself here? And so, you know, all of these things, you have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, making sure you really have a right relationship with Him. And that's not work, that's just making sure. I think it's... Um, 2 Corinthians 13 that says, examine yourself to make sure that you're in the faith. And that's the idea. Make sure you're genuinely saved. I'm never afraid. And somebody says, well, you're robbing people's assurance. I don't think I am. I would rather have you as a genuine Christian evaluate and make sure you're really saved than have you think, well, no worries. I'm saved. I, I said a prayer. I raised my hand. Uh, you, you don't have any fruit in your life, but you said a prayer and you raised your hand. So that's how I would work it out. Um, as far as, you know, you reconcile the proper fear of the Lord as in working out your own salvation. I can tell you that I have fear of the Lord. I do. I, um, I want to live the way he wants me to live. I want to do what he wants me to do. And I don't think he's going to get me, but I want to please him. And as I said earlier, I know that he is an almighty, all-powerful creator of the universe. And I really do want to please him and live for him. So we have a question from Jody. Um, Jody Lynn, this may be the first time you're with us. Welcome. Uh, Jody says, how do I convince a skeptic that the Bible is infallible? I.e. Mark 16, 1 through 8 where three women witness the empty tomb and two women in Matthew 28, 1 through 8. So we have to work through this term infallible, okay? So when you say the Bible is infallible, what exactly do you mean, uh, Jody? Are you saying that my New King James Version that I, that I use is infallible? That as you go through there, there's there's no mistakes. It was taken from manuscripts from the 1600s, 1611, I think, from the New King James was taken from it. Maybe they revisited those manuscripts a little later on to come up with the New King James. Uh, is the NIV infallible? I don't think it is. I found some, I, I began teaching a while back with the NIV, and I found some things that I just completely disagreed with the way that they interpreted uh, the original uh, or the um, the manuscripts, the manuscripts as they come to us, is there any one of those that would be infallible, that don't have any mistakes in it, any written manuscript, old or New Testament, 
that would be 100% perfect, a complete copy of what was given to the first person. As I said before, that's not the way the Bible came to us. The Bible came to us through people, people who make mistakes. And God has promised that he would preserve his word from generation to generation. So, I, I, I like to ask questions. What, what do you mean when you say that the Bible's infallible? What do you mean when you say that the Bible's inerrant? So what, do you, what, what, do you, what do you mean by those statements? Because I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, meaning that God has, is, has brought the truth to us. And even a critic like Bart Ehrman will say with all of the different um, variants that there are, and variants would be one manuscript says one thing, another manuscript says another. Misspellings can be variants. There are a lot of variants, and that can be misleading because there are 5,000 manuscripts. And so if you have a misspelling in 4,000, then that's 4,000 variants. And we know it's a misspelling, so there's not a problem. And um, Bart Ehrman is a is a non-believer. He's a critic of Christianity, but he's a New Testament scholar. And even he says that we this is a, a non-Christian New Testament scholar who says that the textual criticism of the Bible is so good that there's not any major variant that in any way affects a, a doctrine in, in in the Bible, which is a pretty amazing statement to be able to make. But understanding the way we got our Bible, Jody, and there is a book um, by Lightfoot called How We Got Our Bible. It might be better to read um, uh, Evidence, um, uh, well, Evidence in the Man's a Verdict would be a great book to read. A little easier read than that would be A Case for Faith by Lee Strobel. Um, another good book that really covers all these things, which is a newer one, is by Elisa Childers called Another Gospel, and she covers a lot of it. But she covers how we got our Bible and how it came to us. And I, I don't know that they use the term earthy. I don't know if that's the right term to use or not. Uh, scholars might flinch when I use it. But it came to us in a very real way through very real people. Now, Mark 16, 8, where three women go to the tomb and uh, verses... Um, two women in Matthew 28, 18. Again, these are different, but they are compatible. If I'm, if I'm on my way to, to Albuquerque from Tucson, there's a little place out there called the middle of nowhere. And, and I'm talking to you and I say, uh, it's funny, I was going to New Mexico and I went by this place called a little, um, uh, middle of nowhere. And it was out in the middle of nowhere. And then later on, you find out from somebody else, that I was with my wife. And they say, yeah, Robert and Kathy um, drove together to Albuquerque. And you go, well, he told me that he drove by the middle of nowhere. Was I accurate? Did I drive by it? Was I misleading? No, because the story didn't bring Kathy into play. So I can say I went there and be accurate. And then I can say me and Kathy went there and be accurate. They're different, but they're the same. So imagine how that happens from different people and their different views that, that write for whatever reason of who they're writing to. Remember, the Gospels were written by different people to different people. And so certain things were being emphasized, which is how, why you write things and why you would write something that's different. I'm going to write, you know, Mark's already written, but I'm going to write the book of Matthew because I want to write to a Jewish audience which we believe Matthew's written to a more Jewish audience. So he writes things differently. The question is, are they compatible? 
and what's really being said. And so um, I would probably have a better conversation with um, what infallibility really means, how we got our Bible, how there are, you know, it, it is more reliable that they're not identical. If through time, the church that, that had control, I mean, as people are writing these things, if through time they're like, let's make them say the same thing, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all said the exact same thing, then we would say coercion. They got together and had coercion. But the fact that they're different is a strength as long as they are compatible with each other. And then they are not a genuine contradiction, which are very rare. The contradictions people bring up in the Bible are very, very rare. And when we find a contradiction that we would say, this is a legitimate contradiction, we would call that a significant variant. And then we would want to know, does this significant variant affect anything with our faith, how we believe, doctrine, those kind of things. Okay, Jody? So that's just kind of like a little introduction into how we got our Bible, what infallible means, what inerrant means, um, how there are variants in the Bible, how there are manuscripts and no two of them agree. The Bible didn't come floating down with a ribbon hanging out of it and whoa, there it is. And I'm sorry that you haven't heard this before. Uh, I really, I like to talk about it. I want, I want the people I'm teaching to know how they got the Bible because they're going to be confident about it. I, the last thing that I want is for a college student to get into college and have some professor say, there's all kinds of, um, of contradictions in the Bible and not have that college student be able to go, wait a minute, I remember Pastor Robert talking about this, talking about the different variants and that none of them are significant and he can bring them up and it's not, it doesn't shake his faith. So I would talk, Jody, about how God used real people to bring us the word of God. It came to us through, um, through real people. And then we have archaeology that backs up the word of God. We've got geography, that these were real places that you can go back and find the places that, that things were done. They use the Bible to go find archaeological finds because they are they are geographical accurate. They're historically accurate. We have Moabite accounts of the same things that happened during the times of the kings, which, by the way, some liberal scholars today will still say that Israel made it up for a right for the land. They have found a, a cursed stone that dates back to the days of Joshua on Mount Ebal. Ebal, I think that's how you, I think that's how you say it. Ebel, Ubul, Ebel. Anyway, you get my point. Um, there's archaeological finds in Israel that prove that Israel was there. Uh, there are archaeological finds in Nazareth that talk about Sennacherib and his attack with Hezekiah and Isaiah. So we know that these were literal events. No longer can they say, these were the children of Israel taken captive um, into Babylon who made up stories about David and Solomon and Hezekiah um, because they wanted a right to the land. That's, that was the argument back 60s, 70s, maybe in the 80s. No longer can we say that because we have history, archaeology, uh, geology. It's even scientifically accurate in places, which is amazing. Sometimes the Bible's talking from a human perspective and it's criticized for that. The Bible does not teach a flat earth, by the way. Um, it might say the four corners of the earth, but that's an, a phrase that people would use a lot. 
Um, so I would, I would have those kind of conversations with them. Uh, it's going to make their faith stronger in the end anyway, when they can look at it and go, well, these prophecies are true, and this is the way that we got the Bible. It, it makes things even stronger. All right, Jody, thank you very much for your question. Um, really good, and it really helps us to, uh, to get to the point um, where we understand that, how, how we got the Bible. All right, so um, we have another question from Brendan. Let me take a look here, Brendan. Yeah, it looks like we're getting to the end of our questions. I'm going to bring this in. Um, Brandon, not Brendan, Brandon, sorry. Um, Brandon says, uh, question, if there are angels, if angels, if there are angels that are princes over nations, does that mean angels are appointed when a new nation arises? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, or are they over regions, and when a new nation arises, they're over that region? And, and again, I don't know that there's any way to know. Um, I think we're just beginning to get an understanding now of some of the things that happened in the Tower of Babel, some of the ways that the land was divided among maybe demonic forces. Dr. Michael Heiser, talk, Heiser talks about this a lot. Um, <clears throat> recently went to go be with the Lord. Um, but he's challenged by thinking on a lot of that. And we do have the Prince of Persia, the Prince of Greece in the book of Daniel. Um, but if a new, if a new, like if a new, a new group takes over an area in Greece, is the one that was over the Prince of Greece still have control of that area? I would think so, but I, no, no way for me to know that we can check that out. Um, it's. So if it's Prince of Persia, Prince of Greece, um, Michael was the great prince over the people of Israel. So it seems like that's a people instead of a region. I've heard people talking about this topic that talk about regions rather than peoples. So I'm not really sure, Brendan. But thank you for your question. Uh, interesting. and be a good one to think more about. All right. So we have a question from Ashley. Ashley, good to see you. Good to have you here. I've been seeing a lot of post videos about Reform Christianity, and I have been wondering if they are correct about salvation only being for the elect. Is this biblical? Does God pick us? Thank you, Ashley, for your question. Uh, all right. Um, we've got two different questions here. One about Reformed theology, and that are they correct about being that God only, um, the salvation is only being for the elect. Um, and does God pick us? So let's talk about your question, first of all, of if they are correct about salvation being only for the elect. And the answer to that is yes, with an asterisk. Okay? Salvation is for the elect. The question is, who is the elect? And when you're reading the book of Romans, in Galatians, a lot of times the elect is Israel. So you've got to be able to make distinctions from when he's talking about the elect as in the nation of Israel, which is where a lot of the confusion comes in, and the elect in God. So if God elected people who believe in him to be saved, 
then if you believe in Christ, then you are of the elect. Now, what they want to what they want to read into these passages, and I do not believe in Reformed theology. I do not believe in irresistible grace or in um, limited atonement. So, irresistible grace would mean that there are people chosen before the foundations of the world by God unilaterally to be saved, and you can't be lost. And there are people chosen unilaterally by God for the foundations of the world for His own reasons, no one can tell, and you are you are lost and you can't be saved. Problem is, they also believe in predestination, that God predestines everything, and that there's no free will. And so now those ones who are lost can't be saved. They can't, they can't come back. And so now God's going to punish them in hell for them when they can't be saved. They were created by him to be a vessel of dishonor, and now God's going to punish them? And so you have compatibilism, which tries to say that God's just in punishing somebody that, that doesn't have a chance to be saved and was created not to be saved at all, but God's just in, in, in punishing them. And you can say you believe it has some compatibilism, but I don't believe in it at all. Instead, when you get to Romans 9, so Romans 9 talks about God, look, God can make vessels of honor and dishonor. It's God's business. And who are you to say anything to God? Right? And we agree with that. But what if God shows, rather than what they want to read in, is not found in the Bible. That God unilaterally chose someone before the foundations of the earth to be saved or to not be saved. That's nowhere in the Bible. It doesn't say that. When it says God loved Esau, loved Jacob and hated Esau, he's talking about nations. That he loved Israel but hated Esau. And the reason he hated Esau is because they became bad. Yeah, the Bible talks about God beginning to hate people. But God loves us while we're yet sinners. And so God put his love on the nation of Israel and chose them and they were elect because God elected Israel. Does that mean God elected every individual from Israel? No, we know that. Only some who really were, had faith in Christ. Did he save? So in, in, Dan, in Romans chapter 9, he talks about making vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. Never says unilaterally before the world begins. So what is it then that causes someone to be a vessel of honor or dishonor? Well, let me put this up on the screen for you. What shall we say then? This is the end of, of Romans 9. After talking about vessels of honor and dishonor, and who are you to speak to God? What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? So how was it that they became vessels of honor? By being, by faith. And, and they are now the elect. Those who have faith in Christ are the elect. Those who don't are not. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. So they became vessels of dishonor, not because God unilaterally chose them before the foundations of the world to be saved or not saved, but because they didn't seek it by faith. That's what the Bible says. But as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lie in Zion, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's whoever. So the elect are those who believe, the non-elect are those who don't. Now, you have a second question that's here. And your second question is, does God pick us? And the answer is yes. But here's how God picks us. God draws us. The Bible says, I think it's John 6, 44, no one comes to the Father 
No one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. So God's got to be drawing you to come to him. But God has given everyone a certain amount of light and, and evidence in creation, everyone on the earth. Paul even tells the Athenians that God's hope is that they would grope for him and find him because he's not far from any of us. The Athenians were, were at, people in Athens, people in Greece, that Paul went there to preach to on, on the Aragopagus, Mars Hill, and he tells them that God's not far from them. And so God draws people. Now, just because God draws me doesn't mean I have to respond. So if God draws me, he picks me, he draws me, he says, I want you to follow me, and I don't do it, I don't ever become the elect. Uh, we can go to another one of the verses that Reformed theology will use, and that is, early, that is Ephesians chapter 1. Let me go there. So Ephesians chapter 1, and we just start in the very beginning here. Let me read, read through this because it's going to talk about predestination as well, and this is one of their proof verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So he's an apostle by the will of God to the saints who were Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. So who's he writing to? The saints that are in Ephesus and the faithful, those who put faith in Christ, are who are written to. Grace and peace to you, you God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. That's the faithful in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Who? The faithful. Those who are faithful were chosen before the foundations of the world. What they want to read into the text is that God chose us unilaterally before the foundations of the world. It's not there. What's there is that he's writing to the faithful, that God had chosen anyone who would, be, would have faith in Christ would be saved, and that was chosen before the foundation of the world. And yes, God did know that I would be faithful before the foundations of the world, so that I would put my faith in Christ, and so that God could predestine me based on knowing that I was going to follow him. Now, people don't like that. And they'll criticize that particular thought. But I'm not saying that God knew that I would be saved and so he chose me. I'm saying that I, I, I chose Christ. And, and because of that, I became the elect, chosen before the foundations of the world because God knew that I was going to follow him and choose him. And even though you don't like it, doesn't mean it's not true. And it goes on to say um, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, predestined us to adoptions as sons. Who? The faithful. The faithful is going to be predestined to the adoption of sons, not those chosen unilaterally before the foundations of the world. So, yes, God picks us because he draws us, because he knows that we're going to get saved, because he knows we're going to be faithful. Why would God ever put his foreknowledge away and not use it to work in my life, knowing that I was going to follow him. Now, the foreknowledge of God might not work that way. God is, uh, lives outside of time. And instead of looking down the tunnel of time and seeing that Robert Furrow is going to be saved, which is how you're going to hear it mocked, um, that God looked down the tunnel, knew Robert was going to be saved, and then chose him. So Robert's the one that did the work. N no, God lives outside of time. He's seen all of this happen. And we don't know exactly how that all happens, but that yes, I'm faithful and therefore I'm chosen before the foundations of the world because God determined for the foundations of the world that those who would be faithful in Christ would be saved. Okay? Um, I would disagree 
wholeheartedly with the reform position, with the Calvinistic position, with the extreme Calvinistic position. Um, I don't, I don't believe in total depravity the way that they, they believe in it. They believe total depravity means that you can't be saved and that God's got to grace you in a new way in order for you to be saved. It's, it's the same reason I'm not an Arminianist because Arminianists believe in total depravity much more like the Calvinist does and they believe in a provenient grace. God's got to give a grace to them in order for them to really be saved. I believe the grace that God's already given, Jesus on the cross, the gospel being preached, um, how are they going to believe unless there's a preacher? All of that is enough for you to respond to the grace that God's already given. I can't do it on my own. I can't get saved without seeing the light of creation, the, the whatever God's revealed in my heart, God drawing me. I can't be saved without any of that. But I'm chosen because I've, I have had faith in Christ. All right? And that brings us to the end of our Q&A. 10-minute um, answer on that. Hopefully that helps, Ashley. And you feel free to ask follow-ups on this, okay? We can talk about this more. We can have more in-depth conversations on this because there's a lot of confusion about it and there's a lot of, and I'm not saying every one of them is this way, but a lot of arrogance in Calvinism and Reformed theology where they'll look, just look down at us as if we are just thoughtless, haven't thought it through. But in reality, we have. And, and I would love to talk about it more. If you have questions on that, I see a question here from Paul. Um, and um, let's see, any more questions on here? Yeah, another question from Jari. So I'll have this log sent to me. Another question from Kat Lou. Um, I'll take a look at these. And I'll pick one of them for the beginning of our next Q&A. All right. And we will... Um, and you can, you can bring these back up later on. You, even though follow-up, Stephen Gonzalez, you have a follow-up here. You can bring a follow-up in another Q&A about one that we've talked about in the past. All right. So thank you very much for joining us today. I hope this has been a help to you. Uh, hope that you would stay close to Jesus, love him, follow him. Uh, we are looking tonight at Revelation chapter 16, verses 1 through 6, where we have the woman with the adored in the sun and the moon at her feet, and the 12 stars are on her head and the dragon standing in front of her waiting to devour the child that she's going to have, that she's going to bring into labor. And we're going to be talking about what that means and what people have said that it means and what the Bible really says it means and what it means for you and me. It's a key passage. Chapter 12 in the book of Revelation is a key passage. We're only covering the first six verses. Uh, Lord willing, we'll do the next, uh, uh, the, the remainder of the verses next week. But the first six verses today, we're going to be talking about who the dragon is, who the woman is, and um, who the child is. And th there are different opinions, all right? So we'll be talking about that in our study in about an hour, all right? So we'll have a ser our service will be in about an hour. I'll be teaching in about an hour and 20 minutes, 25 minutes, all right? God bless you guys. Love you. Stay close to Jesus. Um, hang in there, uh, endure, and, uh, and love Christ, and be faithful through it all. Uh, uh, rejoice in the testings, the trials that come your way. Uh, because God's doing something inside of you when he brings tests into our lives. All right. God bless you guys. Love you. We'll see you later on.